This is Good Omens, episode 6, the very last day of the rest of their lives on TV Podcast Industries, our final episode in association with... Hmm? Ah! Welcome back. This is our final episode of our Good Omens coverage on TV Podcast Industries, episode six, the very last day of the rest of their lives. I am Derek, one of your hosts. Hello there, fellow acolytes. I am one of your other heavenly hosts, uh, John. I am absolutely confusing uh, this episode title with a Brian Maloko tune that he did with uh, the DJ Timo Mass, the oh, yes. first day of the rest of our lives. So, yes. I'm constantly uh, timey-wimey, spacey-wacy, upside-downy-wowny, uh, you name it, I'm getting this confused. It's also very, very long. It's a very long title. I might have to shorten it down for the name of the episode because I can't fit it in, our, uh, in the uh, number of characters I have <laughs> for the episode, unfortunately. But welcome back, fellow Akites. Again, unfortunately, Chris isn't able to join us for this episode for our final episode of Good Omens. He really did want to be here. Uh, he still believes for some reason that there's going to be a sequel to this series, so he might be back for that in, uh, what, 30 years it took them to make this one. So in the next 30 years, Chris will be back for the second season of Good Omens. <laughs> well, I think with the burning of the further prophecies of Agnes Nusser, mm-hmm. and certainly um, unless the charred remains can be pieced together by some kind of uh, forensic sleuth, then uh, yeah, certainly uh, it looks like that may have gone. Yes, kind of unlikely to see it, but it has been a fantastic series. We've really enjoyed covering it on TV Podcast Industries, and if it does get, get made into a second season, we will definitely be back talking about that. Absolutely. It, actually, it's a real shame that it won't be, because I would love to cover more good omens Uh, but the thing is you know you have to know when the time is right to to stop and uh leave it as it is as nature intended Mm -hmm. or more precisely as neil gaiman and terry pratchett intended exactly and i think uh, that is an important uh, element of storytelling Uh, less is more Mm -hmm. without a doubt and also remember this is very similar to those BBC shows that they usually do around Christmas time, where they have the Act of Christie shows, where they do three or four episodes about one book. This is exactly that. This is six episodes about one book. We're very lucky to get six full episodes done so well and done by the creator of the book themselves in Neil Gaiman and this wonderful director, Douglas McKinnon, who's really taken on board and created this pacing out of the book and into each individual episode. It's just done so, so well. I can't imagine if we did get a second series that would have the same kind of heart to it that this did with so many people involved because of their love of Terry Pratchett and the original novel with Neil Gaiman. Well, that's it. I mean, yeah, it's it's been a fantastic ride towards the apocalypse uh, here on TV Podcast Industries and with the Good Omens podcast. Uh, remember, get in contact with us uh, for our future slate uh, on TV Podcast Industries. Mm-hmm. You can uh, leave voicemail through our website at tvpodcastindustries.com. We are on Twitter at TV Podcast Industries. And, of course, over on Facebook.com. Come and join our page. Just search TV Podcast Industries. And, of course, by our up-and-coming slate, I mean Jessica Jones Season Mm 3, the final ever Marvel Netflix show. Uh, Obviously, we have seen Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and Daredevil, and The Punisher uh, not renewed. And this is the final uh, series of the Marvel Netflix shows, Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately. Um, So let's... Uh, hope fingers crossed that we have a good send-off with jessica jones season three which is out on june 14th yep so not too long to wait at all 
Yes, as you're listening to this episode, it's probably going to be the 13th of June that you're listening to this episode. We'll have, hopefully, our first episode of Jessica Jones out on the 14th on the day of release. Uh, it be a little later than normal because we're doing these episodes. We're taking up a little bit of our time that we would have usually reserved for Jessica Jones. But we will have it out, hopefully, on the 13th of June uh, as you get to watch your episodes of Jessica Jones. Anyway, but enough of that. Let's get on to our final episode of Good Omens. Because the last we left the show, we were coming to the apocalypse. There was going to be a big standoff between everybody in Tadfield, right? John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for the final episode of Good Omens? Sure. Crowley, Aziraphale, Madam Tracy and Shadwell arrive to kill the Antichrist, but instead see the them face off against the riders of the apocalypse at the Tadfield military base, as Adam reveals that they aren't really anything other than figments of human imagination. Armageddon is slowly dismantled as Pepper tells War she believes in peace, hmm. Brian tells Pollution he wants a clean world, and Wensleydale tells Famine he just wants a balanced diet and a good lunchbox. <laughs> With the riders gone from the doomsday table, Gabriel and Beelzebub come to find out why war hasn't started between the hordes of angels and demons. It seems to be something to do with a mix-up between the Great Plan and the Ineffable Plan. As they leave to tell their higher and lower powers, Beelzebub gets Satan involved, but his wrath is curtailed by the admonishment by Adam that he, Satan, is not his real father, as he has not been around to bring him up. As Satan slinks back to his fiery depths, the world has returned to normal with just a few tweaks. But Aziraphale and Crowley are kidnapped by the forces of heaven and hell for their betrayal. Thankfully, the final prediction of Agnes Nutter to choose thy faces carefully saves them both. As disguised as one another, Crowley relaxes in a nice bath of holy water, and Aziraphale warms himself in hellfire. <laughs> Back on Earth, as two angels are dining at the Ritz, so a nightingale sings in Berkeley Square. Oh, lovely, John. What a lovely way to uh, to close out our synopses yes, for the season. Absolutely. I suspect nightingales don't go anywhere near central London, and that... <laughs> is some of the tweaks that come from Adam, I reckon. Well, I do like the kind of joke from the voiceover of God saying, nobody will hear it because it's in the middle of London, but there is a nightingale singing, <laughs> yeah. I promise. Exactly. <laughs> now, we are going to stick with our five signs of the apocalypse, even though the apocalypse is averted as our five points for the episode, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> we have to. Yes. So the first sign of the apocalypse is the them versus the riders of the apocalypse, right? So... Big moments here where we finally get this standoff. I love how this episode opens with everybody just converging on Tanfield Airport. You know, it's every single person from the last episode just making their way in here. We have Crowley and Aziraphale finally breaking through and wanted to go and kill Adam. And it's actually, weirdly, Aziraphale is carrying this gun, this blunderbuss, effectively, to kill Adam. He's about to pull the trigger and only because Madame Tracy stops him does Adam not get killed, right? Which is quite interesting. But this does harken back to the conversation that Crowley and Aziraphale had early on in the season about guns and that Aziraphale does feel in the hands of a righteous person that guns add weight to the justifiable argument, right? So yeah, exactly. Once again, as we see in this show, nothing is in there for, for no reason. Nothing's in there for just a gag. It's in there because it will play out future of the show. Exactly. I think that to shoot a child or not shoot a child, that is the question, I think is really nicely handled here with the kindness of Madame Tracy, uh, effectively taking control of Aziraphale so that he shoots up into the air and not at Adam. I, I, I think absolutely it's a really... Uh, nice way of Adam having his moment as well because I, I was there thinking how is this going to play out uh, because they are there absolutely to kill Adam even Shadwell and Madam Tracy mm -hmm. in that sense are on board here to do that yeah. but of course seeing a child you see how Shadwell and Madam Tracy alter and like it's great acting from the two where you see these facial expressions mm -hmm. at the the kind of shock horror that Aziraphale has just pointed the gun at Adam. And I, I love um, how this kind of plays out. Uh, it, it is a massive moment because then that leads us into the them each getting their moment with their opposite number uh, of the Riders of the Apocalypse, which I just thought was great. I, I think the them are amazing, and I thought each one of them, it was just nicely played. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. This is such a great standoff moment because it is that moment where Adam, as their leader, tells them how they are able to have a hand in stop stopping the Apocalypse as well. It's quite cool where he basically says to them, you know, 
these people here, these embodiments, the war and and uh, death and famine and uh, pollution, each of those is just an embodiment of like a nightmare, really, you know. And once he says that to them, that does empower each one of them to stand up against their opposite number. We have Pepper standing up against war, and I love her opening line where she goes, "My mom just says war is a masculine imperialism played out on a global stage," <laughs> which is so great. You see a lot more of this from Pepper in the books. She is this kind of character that is always constantly reading, constantly informing herself. And as we saw, she was born in kind of a Glastonbury situation, so her mom's a little bit of a hippie, but a very intelligent and a very well educated hippie who pass that on to her daughter and we do get this wonderful line to war where she goes i believe in peace bitch this line is taken directly from tori amos song the waitress uh, tori amos is a very big friend of neil gaiman so i love that he's incorporated it in here as we know the final song that's sung at the end of the episode is also sung by tori amos as well so nice little touches there yeah definitely i think you know we, we also get brian uh, taking up the sword then after pepper has kind of destroyed and combated war. Uh, he takes that up and takes out pollution because, as he says, he believes in a clean world. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really interesting here, certainly for the, with Brian, is that um, this is really topical as well. If you think of the student or school children strikes that are happening, certainly in Europe, um, you think of the Extinction Rebellion kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But certainly it speaks to that that moment of the younger generation saying, well, get a cop on and actually start to enact things. And I think it's really interesting because this was written, what, 20, 30 years ago. 30 years. Um, and it's still as relevant as it was then with someone from a younger generation saying, I want a clean world. I don't believe in pollution. So mm-hmm. I, I find that really interesting. And I think that's it plays the same with Pepper, saying we want peace, not yeah. war. And I think also you could argue with Wensleydale when he says he believes in food and, and a good lunch, basically, mm-hmm. um, that it's about eating well and eating healthily kind of thing. Well, yeah, and, and both of these are kind of references back to early on in the season as well. You know, Brian, remember how he was introduced? He was the kid that can't possibly ever keep clean. Within about three seconds of eating ice cream, he's covered in dirt, basically. Yeah. So I love this, <laughs> that he's the one that stands up and says, I want a clean world. I do want I do want the world to be clean. I might not be able to keep my clothes clean, and I'm sure my mom's very angry every time I get home from playing with Adam and his friends, but I do want a clean world because he's the one that said to Adam earlier on uh, in last episode... Just because the adults mess this whole world up doesn't mean we can't fix it. We're the younger generation, right? We're there to fix it. So we have that piece. Do you remember early on in the season when Adam is in Jasmine Cottage and he kind of says to them, I didn't tell you you could leave. You hear a conversation between Wensleydale and Pepper where he goes, I'm going to go home for lunch because my mom has my dinner ready for me, has my perfectly balanced dinner ready for me. So it is a big concern for him. He's always ready to have a meal that his mom has specifically prepared for him. So he does like this balanced diet. So that's his call out to famine. Love that. Exactly. It, it speaks to their characters as have been explained sort of in, in the, the previous five episodes. And, and I think that's it. I think for such a short uh, series, it's nice to have those touch points back to those previous meetings of the audience like ourselves with Brian, Wensleydale and Pepper. And even Adam, it's the fact that, you know, he is the one that has to stand up to death because and I, I think this has played really well, you know, Death, in a sense, um, he is the shadow of creation. So he's not going to be able to be destroyed as such, but he's scattered to the stars. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's such a nice moment with the skull sort of turning into all these different stars. I really like that. Um, just purely because Adam says that the whole Armageddon, the apocalypse, has to has to stop. So in that sense, death hasn't gone. You know, he is that shadow, that ever-present shadow. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I, I do like that, you know, coming back to the earthly world, it's Newton Pulsifer um, who effectively, in trying to help cause Armageddon, effectively <laughs> shuts it down because he's not a computer engineer. Yeah. He's just really bad with electronics. It's a fun little touch, isn't yeah. it? Of course, he's not trying to actually end the world. He's trying to fix the computers as he's being instructed to do by, by Anathema once she learns that his real part in this. It was just one card from Agnes, Agnes Nutter that says he's not who he proclaims to be and we did mention it earlier on in the season. He proclaimed to her when he arrived that he was a computer engineer, which we knew 
He absolutely wasn't because every time he touched a computer, it either went on fire or, the, or yeah. exploded and turned off all of the electricity in the area or shut down an entire company and got him fired from the company. So yeah, this no, is his, his purpose. This is his superpower, effectively, is to blow up computers and kill them, basically. So uh, lovely touch here to have Newton have a big involvement in stopping the apocalypse in this way. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really great opening, actually, um, for sure. And I think moving on to our second sign of the apocalypse it's is this the great plan or is it the ineffable plan it's this idea that you know heaven and hell still want their war uh you know armageddon has been averted but they still want their war and we have gabriel come down in a flash of lightning and i love how beelzebub comes up through the tarmac of the airfield to arrive on earth to convince adam effectively to to carry on and to to stop this kind of um childlike pretense Mm -hmm. at peace food for everyone and uh, a clean world because without these riders we don't get the war that has been promised for so long i love that moment between beelzebub and gabriel where and slightly early on actually when beelzebub was holding back all the demons going wait for it wait for it it's coming (laughs) and you can tell they've been waiting for hours and hours for this to happen and then beelzebub rises up to earth and we have this conversation between beelzebub and and gabriel where they go have you ever tried to make 10 million uh, angels stand down when they're ready for a fight and beelzebub goes trying to doing that with 10 million demons you know it's a really good little moment between the two of them but it's such an interesting twist on it isn't it because we've heard really right back from eden we've heard aziraphale talk about god's ineffable plan he's mentioned it over and over again ad nauseum really because crowley's been slagging him off the whole time about using this word ineffable plan this thing that isn't possibly explainable and this is what they use to defeat their greatest rivals their greatest adversaries which is the lord of heaven and the Lord of Hell, really. Because what they're saying is, well, you think you know what the great, the great plan is, because everybody does. The great plan is that there will be a battle between the two people. But you don't know what the ineffable plan is, because nobody does. Yeah, only, only God, God can know the ineffable plan. Yeah. Uh, and it's impossible for anyone else to, to know it. Yeah, no, I, I thought this was a nice little um, clever way of saying, well, the apocalypse wasn't absolutely destined to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, only in the great plan but that's presumably been drawn up by gabriel and uh beelzebub for their kind of little war games that they Mm -hmm. want or or another angel and demon Uh, and the fact that that is written down it's like someone has thought they've known god's ineffable plan yeah exactly and so yeah i i really kind of like this or it's the trick of god you know against the forces of darkness or or whatever Mm -hmm. and so yeah, being ineffable, I suppose, maybe it's the height of being a politician in that, you know, you don't necessarily say exactly what you mean, but you try and bring as many people along together. Maybe, maybe, but it is unknowable. So whatever way we say it, whatever way we spin it, whatever way the writers of the book spin it, it's ineffable, it's unknowable. The only person that would know it is God. That's that's effectively the point of it. I am slightly disappointed that we didn't get to see Frances McDormand as God in this episode. I didn't re- particularly expect it, to be honest, because she's been so central. Uh, she kind of took over the voice of the narrator for all of the show, as, as you've heard, now that you've gone to the six episodes. In the book, these are all written as kind of indices and, and written as subscript on the text. So you get a lot of these descriptions from God written at the bottom of each page, uh, giving you some background of what's going on in each situation. So I love how they used God's voice this way throughout the book, but I kind of was expecting a moment at the end of the series where she would kind of forgive Aziraphale and Crowley for all of all the things they did and say, and kind of tell them that they played into her ineffable plan, possibly something like that. But Hey, we heard a lot of her throughout the series. <laughs> and, I, and she could do the whole thing in her slippers. So that might, must have been really attractive for Francis <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, yeah, it's it's a real shame, actually. And I think moving on to the third sign of the apocalypse that we meet Adam's father, Satan arrives on Earth. Oh, yes. Uh, the one thing I want to kind of say there is that um, it would have been great to have seen Francis McDormand uh, on, on the show. Um, it's been great having her voice guard. Um, but I do think the shortest voice cameo ever is here with Benedict Cumberbatch as Satan. Um, I did feel it was really quick. Um, I don't know. I was kind of expecting a little bit more from the King of Hell um, in the sense that I loved the CGI work. Um, I loved how he came up. I loved the voice. It was just a bit too quick. Mm. I, I wish we had spent a little bit more time 
with that conversation between Adam uh, and his father Satan. Or indeed, all of a sudden, God came in on the axe as well to to do something. Um, Or, you know, I don't know. I just thought it was really quick. It felt the shortest voice cameo ever is what I wrote (laughs) in my notes. Oh, no. I think that's partly because you're a huge Benedict Cumberbatch fan. He plays Doctor Strange, your favourite Marvel character on on screen. So I'm sure you felt a bit of a distance from not seeing him play Doctor Strange very much in the last Marvel film as well. So you really were hoping to see a bit more of him on screen. I think his voice here is similar to his voice that he did for The Hobbit uh, as uh, Schmaug. Yeah, Um, definitely. quite similar to that kind of evil demon voice I don't yeah, know it's deep as... it's not it, it is different but it, yeah. it's got the same you can tell it's the same kind of deepness and in intonation i think from yeah. uh, benedict cumberbatch I, I think it's really well done I, I think he does evil voice deep evil voice very very well <laughs> he certainly does. Um, it's great to have sherlock here as well we have a doctor versus sherlock something that the fans have always wanted the crossover between doctor who and sherlock we now kind of have one with benedict cumberbatch and and everybody's favorite doctor recently with david Tennant. you know so uh, lovely little interplay between the two of them there of course um like this idea of aziraphale and crowley taking adam out of reality before satan arrives yeah. this kind of idea of them getting off the plane in in tadfield air, air base so that if anything happens with Satan at all, nobody else is going to get hurt. Now, nothing really particularly happens other than probably the coolest thing to happen. This is effectively a kid's book uh, in some senses. So having the idea of Adam standing up to his his parent who left him behind and has done nothing in his life for 11 years, this idea of this kid going, well, you're not my father. You, you haven't been my father at all. Just because you were the one that created me and left me on earth, I have a real dad and he'll be the one that will punish me for doing these things. Not you, you're not my father. It's a beautiful little moment for this 11-year-old that he finally yeah. is seeing this change in his life, him really becoming coming into his adulthood, coming into his years where he's able to make his own real decisions. I love that. I think what he says, you can't just show up 11 years later and expect me to to take on board what you say mm-hmm. i really really enjoyed this i mm-hmm. thought yeah it, it, it speaks uh volumes to i think the um the directness and, and the honesty of children that yeah. um and i think that's what is nice you know something that could be massively scripture based or ethereal or something like that comes down effectively to um a relationship between a kid and his father yeah. uh, of which the kid has is not having any of it because Mr. Young, who I love the fact that as Beelzebub sort of dusts away, it's a bit of an Avengers end game going on. Um, you, <laughs> you have uh, he, him show up in his newly polished car to say, what on earth are you doing here? What's going on? You know, the neighborhood watch guy has been on at me again. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you have that moment back in Adam's bedroom later on where, you know, he's been told as part punishment to tidy up his, his bedroom. He's kind of grounded to, to his bedroom. Yeah. Um, and I think this is just a really nice moment to take, you know, the extraordinary and put it to the ordinary. Yeah. Um, and, and the familiar, I think, is really, really good. But I love that the resolution to this huge epic story comes down to the anybody can be a dad, but not many people can be a father. It takes a very strong man to be a father, not just be there for the conception, effectively, which is all Satan has done. And he expects his child to just continue on being the Antichrist just because he's the son of Satan. I love that this is also tied in with what Adam said last episode. He was using it in quite violent speech to Pepper and to the rest of the them by saying, what I say is true. And what we actually see here is what Adam says still is true. Adam says Satan is no longer his father. His father is Arthur Young. And that's the way it's always been. And that's exactly what happens. Immediately when he says that, suddenly Arthur Young is absolutely his only father and satan is, has no connection to yeah, him exactly it's, it's, it's really nicely done i think as well that that familiarity that's done with that conversation between adam and satan i loved how it contrasted with as you say were aziraphale and crowley take adam out of the plane of earth and it, it is very supernatural uh, and 
Um, I, I love that. I, I thought the contrast between these two uh, was uh, really nicely done. Uh, and I really liked um, Aziraphale's little speech where he goes, I thought you'd be hell incarnate, but I hoped you'd be heaven incarnate. Mm-hmm. But you are better than both. You are human incarnate. And again, I think it speaks to this whole idea that, you know, too often humans blame these extra powers um, in terms of their own actions. And mm-hmm. actually, uh, in a large part, we are responsible for our own actions. Absolutely. You know, whether it is proclaiming war through a holy uh, measure or whether it's proclaiming uh, whatever else and, and using supernatural beings, yeah. for want of another word, as the basis or the rationale to justify why um, you may think that and actually i think this is the power of this book and it came out in in the the fifth episode as well which is actually humans have their own power and their own choices to make it's not just um whether you're moved by the forces of heaven and hell oh yeah the devil made me do it as the uh, as the old phrase goes it is kind of a, an ongoing piece that's within the books that crowley has used human beings own innate ability to be evil to one another as a way of furthering himself in hell so for example he says the spanish inquisition was actually created by humans <laughs> yeah. he had no involvement in it but he does take credit for it yeah, the minute exactly. it happens he gets his he gets effectively kind of like the knighthood version from hell they kind of go you did a brilliant job there you know here get rewarded for it yeah. he goes okay well, and, and the yeah. guillotine as well with the french revolution, french revolution. yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly so it's an ongoing thing throughout the books that you know people say the devil made me do it but actually it's just people's own choice and, and they can choose even if they're considered the antichrist and the person that is definitely going to, to to bring about the apocalypse they can choose to do something different and adam does it's such a good little moment and it's one of the things that stuck with me right back from the 90s when i read the book originally this kind of hopeful ending to the book that it is all about our own choice as humans as to whether things go good or bad or whether we choose the right path or the wrong path. That's totally down to us. This is the whole thing that you read about in the Bible and you read about in Scripture, which is human beings have their own choice. You cannot say God made me do it or the devil made me do it. You made you do it, and that might be a righteous path or an evil path. You made you do it. It's the simple understanding that i have of of scripture effectively exactly i think with that on to the fourth sign of the apocalypse the aftermath well i guess exactly opposite of the apocalypse isn't it (laughs) after the apocalypse really is exactly what our fourth side of the apocalypse is lovely moment when we got the international delivery guy returning back to life effectively and finding out that everybody else who's died in the previous week is also back to life but i love that he knows what happened because he remembers his last day and then goes i'm not going to tell my wife about it because she definitely won't understand what happened in the last 24 hours yeah and i I think she probably wouldn't believe him anyway Mm -hmm. um because do people come back from the dead uh you know do they believe in in returning from that sort of deathly plane Mm -hmm. yeah no i i I really like this i like the fact that it was returned as before but yeah slightly different so i mean even the nightingale in in berkeley square is that the because i i know it's a tori amos song but ultimately because it's a cleaner world so the birds can survive in in the central london I don't know. You know, um, I think it's just nice. You know, we have um, Aziraphale's shop is all restored and Crowley's car is back to life and unkilled um, and restored to normal as Adam has rebooted the universe Mm -hmm. here. Yeah, and you mentioned a little bit about Adam being grounded. I love this discussion with the them outside in the garden when his mom lets him go out after he's been very apologetic. You know, Adam has cleaned his bedroom to this extraordinary standard as far as his mother's concerned because she's looking at him going okay this looks completely different you've actually taken on board what i said to do and then she allows him to go out and into the garden with dog uh, that's just to give him a little run around but he's still grounded and he has this discussion with the them and they're telling him about a new circus that they want to go and see in the next town over and we hear adam go oh i can't do that because i'm grounded for years and years and years forever and they go how about tomorrow? And he goes, ah, yeah, I should have forgotten it better by then, you know, <laughs> which is a lovely little 11-year-old thing where he thinks this whole day he's been grounded by his parents is just the longest time ever. But by tomorrow, it'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. I I presume Adam still has his powers in that he can make that bush die pretty quickly. <laughs> it's a little moment because it's the last ever moment that he has power 
it seems, because of the voiceover from God. It basically, he says to Dog, don't escape or else I'll have to chase you. I'll have to chase you outside. And it's this little kind of pact between the two of them that Dog is going to escape. And Adam has to do something to get him out. In the books, it's just that the Dog gets out through a hole in the hedge that wasn't there previously. Here, it's much more explicit that Adam kind of melts the bush down. But it says directly afterwards, the voiceover is saying... And Adam feels everything has changed from this moment onwards. Nothing will ever be the same. So that is just him no longer being the son of Satan, no longer being the Antichrist with the powers. From this moment onwards, he will always be just the boy that he is. And it's a lovely moment as well where he eats the apple from the tree of J.P. Tyler, this local man that always causes problems for them, because that's just like his tiny universe version of the apple from Eden. He's now found out what the difference is between right and wrong, as you do when you get to about 11 years old, you can absolutely say you know the difference between right and wrong, just like Adam and Eve did when they ate that apple from the tree back in Eden. So uh, so he does effectively now start on the path to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, of course, he does eat that apple, as you say. Uh-huh. Um, and I think, you know, the voiceover from God is, is really good here that uh, she says... There never was an apple worth eating that wasn't worth the trouble you get into for eating it. Yes, if you're going to leave lovely, nuggety, sweet, juicy apples, <laughs> plums, oranges, whatever, expect them to be nabbed from the tree. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and we do catch up with our other characters, the other uh, major characters that we've seen in the show. We have Anathema and Newton waking up together again. Newton finally explaining his car joke. John, did you guys like the car joke? It was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And I know that Anathema obviously is poking a bit of fun at Newton. She knows it's going to be bad. She said said to him on the first day, (laughs) I I know you're expecting somebody to ask this question, aren't you? You know, you hear a couple of times her saying that. And she's like, okay, just get it off your chest. So it is Dick Turpin was a highwayman and his car holds up traffic. So just like the highwayman Dick Turpin, his car holds up traffic. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Great gag. He wanted to make himself more interesting than he actually was, effectively. So <laughs> this is what he came up with to see if he could meet some new people. It never worked, unfortunately. But now he's together with Anathema. So it didn't work out too badly for him, right? Yeah, absolutely. And they get the further nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nossa delivered the day after the apocalypse mm-hmm. by another legal firm with instructions that were made back in the 15th century uh-huh. um, and ye saga continues <laughs> but it doesn't in the sense that I, I like how they make that decision how it comes through from the previous episode about well have you always followed this 15th century witch who was your relative and you know maybe it's time to start making our own choices I like how they say, you know, there could be that window into riches, new technologies and so on, and they ultimately decide to to burn it. Absolutely, especially because Anathema says, that, well, if there's new te- technologies, you're just going to destroy them anyway <laughs> to uh, to Newton because he's obviously terrible with technology. A nice little, nice little touch and nice little moments there. I also love, this is something that comes out in the, in the book, the description of this book getting from 400 years ago to the present day. Effectively, it says that three people have opened the packaging over the course of the 400 years and each one of them had a note inside telling them something that would make them close back up the package packaging and walk away so we have just that embodied with the guy who delivered the box has this little note sitting there for him telling him that everybody will find out about his illicit affair if he doesn't go away now and leave so he leaves immediately you know this i love this little touch that's in here it's a nice little gag yeah and that is quite direct i, mm-hmm. I love that agnes's prophecies have been a little wibbly-wobbly, uh, you know, you've got to interpret them mm-hmm. in that context. Whereas here, it's kind of like everyone will be told about you and the council officer in planning, yeah. um, effectively. And yeah, that's nice. I think as well, it's great to see Madame Tracy, that Earth's harlot, um, <laughs> being, uh, you know, wooed and ultimately being brought uh, with Shadwell. Um, you know, I love how his kind of, you know, his his name for her is Jezebel. Um, it's just really nice retired that these two hook up. Uh, or retired Jezebel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really nice that these two hook up uh, in, a, in a weird sense, I think. You it's know, interesting, isn't it, that, that Madame Tracy changes her look completely. She's completely stripped off all the makeup, all of the hairstyles she had. Even she's changed into effectively a cardigan-wearing lady. Uh, that would suit Mr. Shadwell. You know, I love this concept that she used to bring him his dinner every week. We didn't really see much of that in the show. We saw that she was 
just a neighbor really early on in the show but didn't really come across early on but throughout their relationship she has always taken care of Shadwell he may have always criticized her and always called called her a Jezebel and said that he didn't want any involvement <laughs> in her life. But we find out here at the end that effectively every Sunday she's always brought over a roast dinner for him. But this time, after everything they've gone through, she's not willing to just bring over a roast dinner. It, we have a setting at the table for you. Come over and join me. And when he gets over there, he goes, she says to him, I have money saved. We should move in together because you can live a lot cheaper. You need to end this Witchfinder stuff. You've done everything you need to do. It's time to, to move on. It's such a cute little concept that yeah. both of these Witchfinders have found their witches. It's really nice. I must say, that was a happy ending for mm-hmm. those two, for sure. Well, it's a happy ending for most people, but I think this was one that really resonated with me, yeah. I think, as well as with Adam and the them, to be honest. Yeah. I think talking of endings, however, onto the fifth sign of the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Choose your faces wisely. Did you catch this? Did you know what was happening all along or not? I didn't catch it before, but when Aziraphale was enjoying his hellfire mm-hmm. and with Crowley enjoying his holy water for me um i think that's when yeah then i kind of understood that it was just the other person and in a sense i think what i quite like here is that you know it finishes as it starts with a switcheroo um it's just that rather than being two babies being switched around by the nuns Mm -hmm. it's the switcheroo of faces between crowley and aziraphale so that um, you know, Crowley can enjoy the hellfire that is the punishment to Aziraphale in heaven, and Aziraphale can enjoy the bath in holy water, which is the punishment in hell for Crowley. And I think that's really, really nice. And yeah. um, that kind of, uh, you know, it completes the circle a bit um, on on this switcheroo uh, device. But yeah, um, I think I noticed, and I suppose it's a bit more obvious then, but in the park when they're sat on the park bench just before they change back. Mm-hmm. I think in that moment, but I think you know at that stage, um, I love how David Tennant is playing Michael Sheen's Aziraphale yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. And I think when we looked back at this episode again, then I spotted that in their performances mm-hmm. as Crowley is being um, judged in hell by Haster and Beelzebub. And Dargan, um, and obviously vice versa, up in in heaven yeah. with Gabriel uh, looking and judging um, Aziraphale. So it, it's it, definitely there. It is, isn't it? Isn't Gabriel really violent here with Aziraphale? Where he's like, yeah. shut your stupid mouth and just burn and die already to him. You know, it's really interesting. And the reverse happens, of course. Aziraphale, because it's Crowley, opens his mouth and spits flame at them. So showing that he's absolutely fine here. So they they feel like they've lost Aziraphale to hell. And hell feels they've lost Crowley to heaven almost. That's what's happening here. They feel like they've just lost two of their greatest weapons to the other side. And they can't do anything about it. I love that both of them are saying they'll just be left alone from now on because heaven doesn't know what to do now. And hell doesn't know what to do. They don't know whether they're being protected by God and by Satan for their part in the ineffable plan or in the great plan. They don't know what happened at all. They don't. They didn't make this assumption that the two of them had swapped bodies. They just go, our greatest punishment here didn't work on them. And Aziraphale, as Crowley, effectively tells them, look what I can do. I can swim in a bath of, of holy water. You don't want to know what else I can do as well. Yeah, so love these little touches in here. So these two are going to be able to live out the rest of their lives whatever way they want to. And interestingly, what we do here from Crowley and Aziraphale is that they think the next battle that will happen is between them and heaven and hell. So heaven and hell joined up together versus the humans, and they effectively are calling themselves part of humanity now. Yeah, I mean, effectively, uh, I I love that moment where they say we're on our side now. Mm -hmm. We have to be this other side. You know, it's gone from, you know, the the forces of good, evil, and everything in between has become a triangle of face-off. You yeah. know, heaven, hell, and earth now. Exactly. Um, and I think, oh, led by Aziraphale and Crowley. And I, I like that kind of idea here, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a great little moment, I think. I, I do feel sorry for Hell's Usher, actually, being sort of dunked in the bath 
by Hasta just to test the holy water out. I thought that was a little kind of harsh. And in fact, he does say you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. I was also convinced that the voice was Warwick Davis. I know what you mean, that the actor that's that's there, he doesn't seem to have any other credits uh, that I could see on IMDb, but uh, it does really do a good Warwick Davis impression. Uh, or maybe it was Mark Davis and he's not able to use his name on, on this role or something like that. But it sounded so like him up until that point because I was going, oh, I recognize him. And then he's burnt in this fire of, of holy water, effectively. Um, it's an awful ending to the character. <laughs> uh, really but I guess is, if you're it? in hell, it's hell, right? It's hell for everybody. It's not just yeah. hell for people going there. It's hell for everybody. Everybody's supposed to hate it. So I guess it's an awful way to go, but it's hell. Exactly. And I love Aziraphale saying, is there no such thing in the nine circles of hell as a rubber duck? to go with his bath (laughs) and i love then on the bench that he Uh goes to crowley when i asked beelzebub for a rubber duck yeah and michael for a towel Uh, hilarious i love that they have this kind of comparing of war stories before they go off to the ritz for their discussion about how it all worked out effectively and i do love it ends on their line that this only worked because Crowley has a little bit of nice, deep, deep down, and that Aziraphale is just enough of a bastard to be worth knowing from Crowley. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Really great ending uh, to this episode and to the series. It really does tie a nice, neat little bow on it, I Mm -hmm. think. Um, And it's a great... Uh, mini-series, effectively, of six episodes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely perfect. And, of course, we'd be remiss in not calling out the fact that the song that's being sung by Tori Amos, which a Nightingale sang in Berkeley Square, we have the Nightingale singing in Berkeley Square, and part of the lyrics of the song are there were angels eating dinner in the Ritz. So that whole ending sequence is just played out effectively on screen as Tori Amos is singing the final song. Yeah, absolutely great stuff. Um, Any notes? A couple of notes for this final episode. There's loads of stuff going on. Once again, we can't talk about every single thing that went on. But obviously, we again would be remiss in saying the final thing that comes up on screen is for Terry, which is as a tribute to Terry Pratchett. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Mm -hmm. really good. Um, Adam's dad drives a car with the registration plate Sidrat. This is the Doctor Who's TARDIS backward. Yes, TARDIS, Sidra. I yes. know. <laughs> really good yeah, stuff. Yeah, there's a couple of the cars in the in the show that actually had the same number plate, but it's very noticeable on Arthur Young's car that he's got it as, as Sidrat on there. Uh, Dick Turpin was actually a highwayman in the 18th century, of course. Uh, did want to point that out just in case some of our uh, foreign listeners may not be aware of that. That is a true story that that's, there was a Dick Turpin as a highwayman. Uh, that's not just made up by any yes. for Stand and deliver, dare I say it. <laughs> Money or your life, exactly. Um one thing I wanted to pop in here, because it's very noticeable in the bookshop when it gets recreated. Crowley walks in and looks at a set of books that are there. These are the Just William Books, a series by Richmond Crompton. Uh, it's a, bu- a book series that was around from like 1922 to 1970. Weirdly, I reached out to Neil Gaiman because I was wondering about it. I was wondering if this was a reference to the fact that Terry Pratchett dressed up as as William because it was his favourite character as a child. Um, Neil Gaiman says it was in the book, so there's actually this is just something from the book. The book itself, I went back to the text itself, and it's a passage toward the end of the books when it all comes back. Effectively, we have Aziraphale saying he can tell the difference between this new world that's been created because he's sure he didn't stock books with titles like Biggles Goes to Mars <laughs> and Jack Cade Frontier Hero and 101 Things a Boy Can Do and Blood Dogs of the Skull Sea. Crowley says he's really sorry about this because he knows how much the angel treasured all of his book collections. Aziraphale says, well, they're all mint first editions and I looked them up in the price guide and they're all worth so much money. <laughs> so... Crowley responds saying he thought he was putting the world back just as it was. And Aziraphale says, more or less, as best as he can. But he's got a good sense of humour as well. So he's an 11-year-old boy. The sense of humour here is that for Aziraphale, who collects these amazing, wonderful books, that for him, he's going to populate the whole place with first editions of books that an 11-year-old would read. Interesting, fun books, not these dusty old tomes exactly. that Aziraphale would take. So, exactly. So great stuff. Yeah, And quickly, one other thing I discovered after I'd recorded this episode. In a newer edition of Good Omens, the one that's on Kindle, is actually a little interview with, uh, with Neil Gaiman at the end of the book, where he effectively explains that this book is a parody of Just William. Uh, he says, a few years after we met in 1988, Terry and I wrote a book together. It began as a par- parody of Rich Mel Crompton's William books, which we called William the Antichrist, but rapidly outgrew that conceit and became about a number of other things instead, and we called it Good Omens. So in his response to me saying it's in the book, he actually meant 
it is the book, basically. So nice little touch point there. Cool. Excellent stuff. That is for our notes for our final episode of the season. John, I will leave it to you. What did you think overall? As your first experience of Good Omens, what did you think of this as a series? This was great. Um, like, I've not read the book. So for me, this this had um, everything. I was really just surprised by the messages in here. I loved the comedy um, that played with these messages as mm-hmm. well. And I mean, you know, just star performances by Michael Sheen and David Tennant. I think the kids that were the them, Pepper, Wensleydale, Adam and Brian, just really, really good. I mean, you know, you do connect with them. And I love that kind of reflection uh, back to the, you know, the riders of the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, Shadwell and Madam Tracy, again, such a nice pairing and i i just loved how the supporting cast really uh, comes into its own here i mean you know ultimately this is a story of aziraphale and crowley with kind of that secondary story of the apocalypse coming damien or should i say adam and and his friends and the riders of the apocalypse but all these supporting characters from agnes nutter being burnt as witch Mm -hmm. to thou shall not commit adultery pulsifer um all amazing you know to the the chattering order of saint beryl oh, yes. uh to the hordes of gabriel and heavenly hosts and beelzebub mm-hmm. and the demons so i mean for me i absolutely uh thought this was a really good series for the episode i Give this four rubber hell ducks out of five. Uh, Or maybe that's four hell rubber ducks out of five. (laughs) Uh, I'm not entirely sure. It depends whether it's like a hell hound or a hell rubber duck. I get you. Or is it a hell duck that's Mm -hmm. just made of rubber? (laughs) Both impossible, I believe. I don't think there is any rubber ducks in hell. They would melt in the flames, I reckon. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But they will float, hopefully, on the holy water. Uh, For me, absolutely love this. This series was one I've been looking forward to for so many years. I've heard so many versions of this possibly coming to screen. You know, there's, there's stories about Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett trying to get this off the ground. And it's just not coming together so often. You know, there's a really interesting story. I think I mentioned it early on in the season about mm-hmm. about Terry Gilliam uh, possibly getting this to the screen with Robin Williams in one role and Johnny Depp in the other roles. Two wonderful actors and a fantastic director. I know Terry Gilliam has seen this version of it and absolutely loved it as well. There's so much Monty Python in here. There's so much Blackadder in here. There's like representations of every single version of comedy I love in the UK and great drama in here as well. One of our pieces of feedback that we got last episode from Steve Brown was talking about the fact that he thought the show was going to go really dark now that it was getting to the end and it took a lighter path. And that's what I love about the story. It's so hopeful at the end. Absolutely. And it could have gone dark. It could have been hellfire and brimstone in this last episode. They could still have done it, but they chose a good path to make this still a story about an 11-year-old boy turning against his true nature i suppose or what everybody's telling him is his true nature with the help of this angel and this demon it is it's that kind of age old question as well of you know nature versus nurture Mm -hmm. as well it's this idea that you know people too often are ready to assign what someone is based on something Mm -hmm. and this is basically saying um, that might not be the case, be ultimately. As yeah. simple as that. It's a great message to take from this series, as well as all the weird, wonderful base jokes as well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, Madame Tracy farting and burping as she gets possessed by Aziraphale. What is not to like? <laughs> More than a comedy fart going on. Absolutely, absolutely. You have to have moments like that as well. You know, I loved Aziraphale and Crowley through the ages. That was one of the most wonderful parts of the episodes back in episode three. Absolutely, yeah. So good having these characters all together. But you're right, so many of the uh, minor characters, or so many of the characters that only had a few minutes on screen, really made the most of all of those minutes that they had on screen as well. Uh, Let's get on to some feedback for our final episode of the show. Uh, Tina Brown over on Facebook has watched the full season over the course of a couple of days and popped in some feedback in each of the episodes. But just some feedback she popped in on episode five, the last episode that we had out. She says the scene in the bar between incorporeal Aziraphale and a drunk Maldron Crowley was the highlight of the series for me. <laughs> That's a great moment. Yeah, to it is really good. Uh, yeah. Also on episode five, Jeff Child says Miranda Richardson playing Madame Tracy and Aziraphale was a highlight along with Crowley's flaming car. 
all of these disparate threads are coming together so beautifully. How do you not go on to the next episode to see how it is all resolved? Well, that is true, Jeff. Um, It is a tough one to hold back. Dare I say it, it is like the temptation of 40 days and 40 nights. (laughs) Um, You know, will you get tempted to go in? And it's kind of, no, we have to hold back. So, yeah, it is definitely tough not to just simply move on Mm -hmm. to the next episode. But, you know, thankfully, Derek is here to put me in the restraining bolts and and the the headlock. (laughs) Yes, or 2D2, no problem at all. Um, For me, really, I've been waiting since 1990 for this show. It was only going to be six weeks. I'm so glad we saw it the way we did, but I wished it was switched the other way around where we got it on BBC one episode a week for six nights uh, over the course of a couple of weeks, you know, whereas getting them all in one bundle on one day, I know so many people who watched this in one day last week, that's not as much fun for me, you know, watching it multiple times each episode, talking about it with John and Chris about each episode and all the layers and all the detail that's in there is so much more fun. So I'm so happy we watched it this way. We didn't watch any episode ahead at all. No, absolutely Literally watched, recorded our podcast and watched the next episode. For us, it's easier than it is for, we know, our fellow acolytes, because you guys are waiting for our episodes to come out to know when to watch the next episode, effectively, if you're watching it along that way, I suppose. Whereas we can kind of go watch an episode, record our podcast, and then watch the next episode all in one day, which is the good part. So we do have a little bit of benefit uh, to being able to record when we want to, I suppose. And on the final episode, Robert Phillips says, utterly entrancing, the authorial craftsmanship which made the gun hung on the wall in Act 1 being utterly irrelevant in Act 6. But the computer unengineer exploded to save the world. <laughs> the very subtle drop of lazing on a Sunday afternoon from the brass band and the perfect encapsulation of childhood eternities lasting until sundown. What a delightful finale to this masterpiece. Can't name a missed beat in the whole of this episode. Thanks so much, Bob, for um, your thoughts here uh, on the final episode. Really good to hear it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. um, I think uh, so many things intertwined here to really make something of this final episode, whether it was for naught and irrelevant or whether it really uh, brought some of the themes and and aspects uh, of this, uh, whether it's, as you say, childhood, whether it's the difference between good and evil um heavenly hellish and human uh, all to the fore it was really really nicely crafted for sure yes thanks so much bob and great hearing all of your thoughts throughout this season of good omens i'm glad you've been enjoying it as much as we have absolutely we have one final voicemail from steve Bryan. hey guys it's steve from oklahoma and i uh, just wanted to give some thoughts on the finale of good omens and i uh, just absolutely love uh this podcast and I'm torn between whether I want to actually read the book or or not because I know there's probably more stuff in the book but now knowing the story I probably will eventually end up reading the book but I just thought uh, I'd comment on that and uh, absolutely love the body swapping thing at the end I was completely fooled I had no clue that's what was going to be the answer the way that they kind of pulled this off and uh, uh, absolutely love John Hamm's trail uh, it's just great and uh, all these everything about this this show i can't wait to go watch it again and uh, see the things that i missed in the first uh, five it won all the episodes really and uh loved your guys's podcast can't wait to hear what uh, what you guys thought and uh, i look forward to hearing your guys's thoughts on jessica jones i'll be podcasting myself on on my uh, uh my podcast about jessica jones uh, this week as it as season three drops so I, I look forward to hearing your guys' thoughts on that and uh, just just really good i uh absolutely love at the end uh, the uh, adam you're, you're not my dad and uh, it's i don't know if it's in the uk or not but here in the in the states we have a joke where every once in a while when somebody's telling somebody to do something they'll say you're not my real dad so it's kind of a, a joke here so i, I kind of like that that was uh, kind of in the the show as well and uh I, it, I regret that we're not going to get a second season. I, I kind of wish Neil Gaiman would uh, bring himself to maybe write something. But uh, at the same time, I, I love just kind of leaving it out there as we don't know if does Adam still have some powers, even though, uh, you know, Zero Fail did say he is a human again. But also, 
he was able to do all these things. So anyway, uh, can't wait to hear what you guys thought and uh, talk to you later. Thanks so much for that voicemail, Steve, and thanks for the voicemails you sent in during the season. Uh, Steve does the Panels to Pixels podcast, also doing some Marvel shows and, and other comic book shows as well, so check that one out too. Um, some really good thoughts on there. I know you sound like you enjoyed that this show as much as we did. Do you read the book or not afterwards, John? It's a good, a good question and a good one for you, I suppose, since you're the same. You haven't read the book. You've all, all, all you've had is me giggling at, at portions of the audiobook this year, me giggling at bits of the book and putting it in your face a few times. But what would you think? Would you think you read the book after? I, I think so, yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those things where it, it's like with Game of Thrones. You know, I read the books before mm-hmm. coming to the TV and I love the TV series. I, I mean, I think generally you can be enriched by both forms of, of storytelling and they're both very different you know um and I, I would love to see uh some of the more uh descriptive or intimate moments that's maybe pulled out uh, in the book more than say in the tv show or mm-hmm. just to see you know what things were uh cut you mentioned the hell's angels from uh the last episode so yeah. those you know What's missing? What was included? What was different? I, I mean, I suppose you would be reading it in that way for sure. Yeah. But certainly, um, I, I would really like to to read the book um, after this. And I also agree, Steve. Uh, you know, uh, watching it again, you pick up so so much as well. Absolutely. And can I also tempt you by saying that the end is slightly different in the book? There you go. That's a little teaser for maybe you should read the book. Oh no! What does no, the end? The world ends. No, it doesn't. <laughs> the, the end of the book is slightly yeah, different. You so can't just you say it's different ending when the ending is that the world is saved. That makes it <laughs> sounds like so. Is that the big switcheroo between the book and the TV show? Let's um, say it's similar to the the Watchmen ending, I suppose, versus the movie and the books. There you go. So there's a little little changes, but overall the spirit of it is there, of course. The body swapping was a real surprise to me as well. As I say, and I think this comes back to watch it again. I think you do notice some of those different intonations being pulled up or you Mm -hmm. just watch it in a different way knowing that. And you can see uh, the subtlety in the performance of Michael Sheen and David Tennant, Mm -hmm. you know. So I think that's really good. Also, I have to say, love the title of your podcast, Steve, Panels to Pixels. What a great name for a show. Good enough, yeah. So, yeah, big thanks for the feedback, uh, Steve. And also, yeah, a big thanks to Tina and Jeff and everyone who's provided their thoughts uh, on this series of Good Omens. Mm -hmm. It's been a real pleasure to read out your comments and your ideas, theories and thoughts on everything to do with Good Omens. Uh, So, yeah. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, this is so quick for us. In two weeks, we've finished an entire series. It's really unusual for us to do it this quick. And we've gotten so many brand new listeners to the podcast. Huge thank you to all of you that joined us for this podcast. As we've mentioned before, make sure you subscribe on any godly or devilish podcast player over at tvpodcastindustries.com. Make sure you subscribe to TV Podcast Industries because we're going to be covering so much more stuff over there. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts on Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Next up, we are covering Jessica Jones Season 3, which is the 11th and final season of the Marvel Netflix TV shows. You can get it on tvpodcastindustries.com or if you're already subscribed to us over on Defenders TV Podcast, that'll be the last podcast we'll be doing over there. So uh, check it out over there we do have every single episode of jessica jones and her her appearances on the defenders uh, covered on on those podcasts as well so you can check them out a massive thank you to jason Cabassi and podcastica for their help in putting together this this podcast uh, so cool to be working with uh, with podcastica for these for these episodes and um, it's the first time doing any kind of anything in conjunction with podcastica yeah, it's been really good to get involved with podcastica.com. Uh, uh, yeah, a huge thank you to um, everyone over there. And certainly, uh, as we have said previously, please go check out their other podcasts as well. The Walking Dead cast, House Podcastica, and Strange Indeed, which mm-hmm. look at Fear the Walking Dead, Handmaid's Tale, and 
uh, the new Black Mirror season as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, some great podcasts over there. Check them out. Before we go, a huge thank you to all of you, our new listeners, and to our new friends over at Amazon Prime. We hope to bring you some coverage of some of their new shows and their future exclusives. We know The Boys is coming soon. A comic book uh, by Garth Ennis is coming up uh, in July, I think, um, from Amazon Prime. We really hope to cover that here. Uh, and also, they're going to be doing The Lord of the Rings, which I know is one of your huge, huge obsessions, John, as well. So uh, we're hoping to get to see The Lord of the Rings on Amazon Prime in the next year or so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can't wait for that to come out. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we'll be definitely covering that over here on tv podcast industries and the boys as well as you've mentioned yes we know chris is a huge fan of the boys so we're hoping that he's going to be able to be on for every episode of that show as well yeah he will be our expert on the boys Uh uh that should normally be either you or me normally normally (laughs) i'd love to call myself an expert in something so good omens is over no longer an expert on to Jessica Jones next week. Thanks so much for joining us, fellow acolytes. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, as always, fellow acolytes, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a pleasure speaking with you. In the words of Madam Tracy, Earth's Jezebel, now retired, temptation accomplished. Thank you very much, Terry and Neil. Uh, and of course, we'll be back to speak with you soon. Bye. Are we going to the Earth for dinner? Uh, no, McDonald's. Okay. <laughs> Yummy. The apocalypse is over. Take off your hard hat, Lucy Lucy Hinney. Hinney.